action. Welcome to Torn Stubs, with me, photographer Robert Gershenson, and Josh Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we're going to the movies. To celebrate the release of Joshua's brand new book, The Shadow Glass, we are looking at the best of 80s sci-fi and fantasy movies to see what got Joshua's juices bubbling. In this episode, we are... (laughs) Just my juices, not my creative juices. (laughs) Just my general juices. (laughs) Just just the juices that you use for the gravy. (laughs) In this episode, we watch the classic Masters of the Universe from 1987, directed by Gary Goddard, Joshua. Despite the efforts of man-hunk hero He-Man, say that three times twice, played by Dolph Lundgren, the world of Eternia has fallen to evil tyrant Skeletor, played by Frank Langella. There's hope, though, when He-Man encounters locksmith Gwildor, played by Bill Barty, who whisks him and his friends to a place called Earth, where they meet a couple of teenagers, played by Courtney Cox and Robert Duncan McNeil, who could prove instrumental in reclaiming Eternia and taking down Skeletor for good. Robert, when's the first time you watched this? <sighs> it must have been... Must have been late 80s, early 90s. Probably late 80s when I was into He-Man. So you, did you see it in the cinema? No, I, I don't think I saw it in the cinema first time round. The mm-hmm. last time I watched it, well, obviously the last time I watched it was last week when I watched it for this, but the time previous to that was with you at the Prince Charles Cinema. Yes, and you know what? That was like a revelation to me because everyone was laughing and I didn't realise how yeah, funny no it was. No one took it seriously. <laughs> no one took it seriously. I mean, it was part of their good bad movies wasn't it yeah they had a season good bad movies and this just happened to be one of them no one took it seriously and people were like calling things out and finding the most ridiculous moments hilarious and quite frankly this film is fucking terrible i mean it's it's uh it's definitely an interesting one (laughs) that's for sure it was almost like it was made up as they went along it feels so higgledy piggledy put together or if they weren't making it up as they went along, then somewhere there is a four-hour cut that is mind-boddingly... Mind-boddingly? That mind is mind-body amazing. <laughs> <And soul. laughs> because it feels like this film jumps all over the place in terms of story and character. And the twist just comes out of nowhere. What twist? When Right at the end, when they send Courtney Cox back... So her parents can live. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know. I kind of liked that. I feel like if you can travel through space, you probably could travel through time as well. But it also doesn't make any sense because they could just undo everything Skeletor did by going back in time. (laughs) Yeah, they could Avengers Endgame the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. But maybe it's just like a one shot thing. I don't know. Or or maybe it's Gwildor and he just learned how to do it. I don't know. Happy He's ending. A little ginger troll, isn't he? Yes, played by Bill Barty, making his second appearance on this season of Torn Stubs. Really? What else was he in? He was in Willow. As who? The power to the universe lies in which finger? He was the elder magician who auditions oh. or like holds like an open audition to become a magician. Audition to become a magician. <laughs> it was all about tongue twisters today, Rob. 
which is the new ITV show that you are fronting. Audition oh, to absolutely. become a magician. You and with Stephen my co-host Mulher. Warwick Davis and Stephen Mulhern. <laughs> well, he was either like the cleverest person in that universe or the stupidest because I couldn't get a hand on how that cosmic key worked. It was either yeah. so powerful and he knew everything about it or he knew nothing about it. There was no gray area. It was either on or off. He knew or he didn't. <laughs> it was either on or off, absolutely. I feel like it's the kind of thing you can only invent in the 80s. You can't invent it in the 70s or the 90s. It purely belongs on the 80s because it's a rock time travel device basically it's like they went oh the delorean that was a really cool like time machine um so how can we make ours even cooler and it was basically to have like a synth synthesizer that you play a bit like a keyboard but it's got like spinning pitchforks on it and it makes pretty lights to distract you yeah and surely when the the non-attorney people so courtney cox and her boyfriend Surely when he's playing with it and the lights are beginning to like twinkle in the air, mm-hmm. surely they would go, fucking hell, I'm shit scared. I don't know what's going on. This is so new. My Yamaha Casio keyboard doesn't do this and neither does my recorder, <laughs> nor does my Alba tape recorder. So what the fuck's going on with this thing? I'm really scared. I want to put this down. Not, no. oh my God, I'm going to incorporate this into my set for whatever <laughs> yeah. concert this is that no one's arrived to. No, because the 80s is the era of neon and lasers. So they would have just been like, oh my God, this is so rad, or whatever they used to say in the 80s. <laughs> but I do think that. Wildor must be a genius because he comes to Earth and within, I'm going to say 10 minutes, he's modified a car to be able to run with all these newfangled doohickeys and stuff. Yeah, and go where super did he fast. get all the material from? How did he fix this car? How did he know how a, a Cadillac works? He can't be... Yeah. He can't be both clever and stupid. <laughs> I know. He doesn't get fashion, but technology, now that he gets. No, he doesn't get technology because he can make the Cadillac super duper. He pimped the car, pimped yeah. the ride, but pimped he couldn't get his own invention to work. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, because he had a prototype, didn't he? Like, he had a, a version that wasn't finished, but Skeletor didn't know about that. But he must possess all or he possesses nothing. So he, that's why he goes after him, basically. Makes sense to me, Rob. It makes no sense. Um, <laughs> is Courtney Cox leaving or is she not? Because she's fucking hanging around. <laughs> she does. She's like, oh, I just want to go to the, the cemetery to say goodbye to my parents. Oh, I just want to like hang around at the school for a bit longer just to say goodbye. When's your flight, Courtney? <laughs> yeah. I thought you had a flight booked. You get the sleeper train. Because <laughs> you're not doing any sleeping. I know she does. She does delay it quite a lot. For someone who says that she really wants to leave town, leave her boyfriend, all of that, she doesn't particularly want to leave, does she? No, no, she doesn't want to go at all. Um, no. The cast, right? The cast is brilliant. Dolph Lundgren um, doing his best Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's great. I think he's. I think he's a really good actor. Um, I wouldn't say really good. He is good. <laughs> I think he has the. The he's body. got the posture he's got the body hasn't he i think that he mm. is able to pull off a lot of what happens purely because he looks like a gladiator basically you know he doesn't when he speaks it's like oh but otherwise he looks the part 
But interestingly, he's only playing He-Man. He's not playing the no. softer, nerdier, geekier Prince Adam. Because in the cartoons and in the in the, the TV show and in the, the toy line, Prince Adam is He-Man, but secretly no one really knows who... They, no one knows that Prince Adam turns into He-Man, yet here we've only got He-Man. Yeah. So I think if it was a case... Do you think he's suppressing Adam, his... He's suppressing his uh, more sort of... Le- oh, I don't know. What, what would you call that Prince Adam? Like more of a human side. His regular side. But I think he would have struggled to have that kind of... Sp- that dual role. He would. He's not a gifted enough performer to portray an Adam and then an He-Man and have them be completely different. Yeah, certainly not in, know, at this point in his career. He Not in any point in his career. <laughs> He could have a 400-year-long career. There would be no point in that career where you, someone goes, right, he's ready to do the dual thing now. He's ready yeah. to be Adam and He-Man. Well, because he never... He's sort of such a, a a man-hunk that you just can't imagine him relating to anybody on an emotional level. So you can't imagine him sort of having a, a deep and meaningful conversation with anybody. I'm sure he does. I'm sure he's a lovely man. But well, as he He-Man, was having that. he was having that lovely chat with... Courtney Cox filling her in on the uh, the plot true. of the film thus far. No, that's true. He does have a little twinkle in his eye there. Yeah, I could I could buy that because I do love the fact that he time, kind of... so he knows exactly how much Courtney Cox is going to be worth in about eight years' time. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I do love that she does her scream scream in this film oh, twice. Well, when she grabs her hair and yeah. her face. And... No, <sighs> that's Dewey. her scream scream. Dewey, ridiculous. No. But there, there is that moment where he's telling her the plot of the film and she just believes him. I know. No, well, she's seen no a sparkly no synthesizer. Doesn't mean... No. Don't, I don't buy that. <laughs> no. I, I reject your that. hypothesis. Because she... <laughs> I reject your hypothesis. I reject your thesis. But she's, she's just... She just believes him. She should be saying, you're a nutter. Why are you dressed like that? Is your hair a wig? What the fuck is going on? I think there's definite parallels between this and the film that we covered at the start of the season, Terminator, where... I felt that because she's working in a diner. And do you know what? Her co-worker looks just like Sarah Connor mm. with the, po- the boofy hair. But I mean, also, you know, obviously a guy turns up and tells Sarah Connor that she's a badass in the future or her son's a badass in the future and the robots come to kill her. And she's just like, get the fuck out of this car. Whereas Courtney's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But with Sarah Connor, she's involved in the plot. She has a motivation to get involved. Yeah. Here, Courtney Cox just basically goes, right, we need to help him. We need to help him get this thing so he can get back to this place. I believe this guy. There's no reason for her to get involved. No, no. reason whatsoever. Any sane person would go, no, no, I'm no, fuck you, big man. I'm going. Yeah. You with your pants and your hair and your sword and your weird little ginger cunt, mate. I'm leaving. Oh. And actually, she doesn't help them really at all. It's Kevin who figures out how to play the chords of the cosmic key in order to get them back to Eternia. So actually, she's she's kind of set up as sort of the mainish character on Earth, but then she doesn't really do much. She gets attacked, which actually is quite a horrifying scene. I love that scene. Like, <laughs> it's a horrifying scene, but you love that scene. I love it because it's so... Um, it's really actually quite scary. Like well, you, do, is it... you do understand how she feels when a 
fucking great big beast man in samurai armor just turns up and starts screaming at her right but there's that there's that scene where you know they're they're in the gymnasium and you've got the one with the big silver hair that makes me think yeah. of swinton is running after them <laughs> right yeah but in the next scene she runs literally literally runs into he-man and she doesn't uh-huh. scream from him she just immediately goes well he must be good not oh he's part of the bad group i best run yeah she's very trustworthy trusting she is definitely uh, and then she gets hit with that skeletal poison and she's basically unconscious for the rest of the film like James she's, but she before that she's really likable i think she just has sort of this really lovely girl next door apple pie and ice cream kind of charm to her that's just really natural like you just kind of like her immediately without really knowing her yeah and i guess it's 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 a different it's a kind of different courtney cox that we were then we would then sort of be introduced to because courtney cox is very good at playing very tough women yeah. you know and sort of monica for people all her well. yeah but monica for all her neuroses is a very tough you know you don't mess with yeah. monica gail weathers even less fucking love you, know, you don't mess with gail weathers yeah but obviously the crowning glory for this film goes to Frank Langella, clearly. Oh, this is his greatest role. Absolutely. Even, and that said without any sense more, of... Yeah. Even more than Nixon. Yeah. I think that this, the reason that I love this film so much is purely because of Skeletor and Evelyn, I think. But obviously, especially Skeletor, I think that Frank Langella did something so special with a role that could have been so awful. Like, you know, he rises above the material. He towers over it with, you know, he delivers Shakespearean lines and you don't laugh. You kind of go, fuck, yeah. Like, he's just so great in this. And he's acting through about 10 feet of prosthetics on his face yeah, as well. You can see his mouth about two miles away from the other one. Yeah, exactly. You can you can just about see the black makeup on his actual lips beneath yeah. the prosthetic lips. Yeah. Yeah. But it's weird that all of Skeletor is degrading except his eyes. His eyes are perfectly healthy. <laughs> yeah, because in the cartoon he has no eyes whatsoever, right? Or does, does he have kind of specks? Well, yeah, he's a skeleton. Or just hollows. Well, he's just a skeleton, so there's nothing there. Yeah. But he gets a lovely glow up. He does. I love it. I love the gold. Shiny, lovely, shiny helmet. Yeah, lovely, shiny, spiky gold helmet. Just completely camp. I mean, this film, I guess it's a similar question that we spoke about on Conan. Conan wasn't made to be camp, but Mm. for whatever reason, it has a campus to it. I think Mm -hmm. this is made with such seriousness but it's so cheap and off the mark. It, it, it's not Star Wars. It's not even Flash Gordon. Huh. It's just made... It's somewhere in between, I think. I think it's made by people wanting to capitalise on all of that kind of fantasy, sand and, and swords kind of thing. I think they're just chasing the money. They're chasing the special effects, which are something else in this film. Well, I was going to say to you, do you think the film takes itself seriously? Because there are lots of little cheeky bits of humour that tell you actually it kind of knows it's being ridiculous. 
Like when Gwildor, Gwildor locks up his house and the last lock he does is a little chain lock, which is just taking the piss completely. Um, (laughs) You want to keep people out. You can't take, (laughs) you know, you have to be serious when it comes to safety, Joshua. I know, I know. I'm sorry. I shouldn't joke about that stuff. Um, You know, things like when, when Teela's like, why do they put the food on these little white sticks? Like there's just little bits like that. And like the moo, the whole moo, you know, I think it's, it knows it, it's being silly completely. It's got a man running around in a cod piece and a cape. It just, it just feels so serious. Like it's not, for me, it wasn't wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It was like, this mm. is deadly, deadly serious. There are moments of levity because it's a kid's film. Yeah. But it's not. You know, it's not Naked Gun. It's not. It's not a spoof. It's not scary movie. It's not airplane. They're not. It's not Spaceballs. They're not sending up the genre. They're being no. really serious and thinking that they are creating a gold classic as opposed to <laughs> a camp classic. Well, I would argue they did, but I I do think that it was made by people who love genre because it has that it's straining for that sense of, of grandeur and it's got these fantastic sets. You know, the, the throne room, Skeletor's throne room is fantastic. Um, it's got sort of big ideas like ruling the universe. It's got fun gadgets like the cosmic key. I think it, it's, it is made by genre fans and I think maybe that's why um, I love it so much is because is you can feel that love coming through the utterly ridiculous things that are happening on screen. But it's made by Canon Films, yeah. who were something of an unusual movie studio <laughs> um, in the 80s, 70s and 80s. They were actually, they, they were, it was founded in the 60s, but it didn't really kind of get off the ground until... 1979 when a pair of Israeli cousins called Menahem Golan and Yoram Globus bought the company Um, and they were huge American movie fans so they fully wanted to do that themselves Um, and they their output was of varying quality but I wonder like how do you feel about canon films? Like, were they a force for good or were they, were they a force for not so good? <laughs> like, <laughs> well, reel off a couple of their their hits. They did uh, Delta Force and they did... Well, <laughs> they did... A, one of their first ones was a film called Joe, which was a, a really big hit that was nominated for an Oscar, actually. Mm. Um, they did films like Operation Thunderbolt, which was one that Golan directed about the hijacking of a passenger jet, which um, was nominated for a Best Foreign Language Oscar. I love and that And then film. they started doing things I like... I genuinely, genuinely love that film. It's based I've on never real, seen it. It's based on um, the, raid on the, the Raid in Entebbe, which is um, oh, yeah. um, some uh, Palestinian terrorists from the, um, the Palestinian Liberation uh, mm. organization i think it is the plo hijacked an israeli um allow flight and um true story and idi amin allowed them to land and he stepped in saying i'm gonna save the day but then he wanted too much from the israelis so the israelis raided it 
shot everyone but took the passengers back with them jesus but yeah wow. that, that, i just remember that film from my childhood yeah that's intense well so okay so they did stuff like that that was clearly of of good quality but then they started moving more into a film called new year's evil they did enter the ninja death wish 2 uh exterminator 2 i think i've seen exterminator 1 which is just a really bad terminator ripoff um and then later on that the the real death knell for them were expensive flops like this film masters of the universe combined with superman 4 um, oh yes they did superman 4 that was shot those in milton two. keynes shot in milton keynes they slashed yeah. the budget from something like 60 or 70 million to like 17 million just yeah. completely ruined but they were struggling they were really struggling um, there's a really great documentary if you haven't seen it called Electric Boogaloo: The Boogaloo, Wild yeah. Untold Story of Canyon Films. I, I really recommend watching it, uh, but it's named after one of their biggest hits, which was um, Boogaloo Two. I think it was like a massive dance film. Electric I haven't Boogaloo. seen it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, Electric Boogaloo. But I kind of feel like they're, they're this this curio of the '80s that I have a real affection for because they. They talked. They said that uh, you know they were great at talking about talking themselves up. They were great salesmen. They really understood the international market. So when they went to America, all these American studios were like, "What the hell are you doing? What are you talking about? International market?" But they understood that, and that's why they lasted for ten years. But they, Yoram Globus said, "Canon is the only studio that loves cinema. Cinema is our life," and you kind of believe it because they did have this joy for genre cinema in particular. Um, and they wanted all the money to be on screen. You know, there's something that he said that was like, 99% of the money has to go on the screen. It's not going on limousines, basically. Well, where the fuck did the $22 million budget for this film go? Because it's not on <laughs> screen. Someone's got rich off this off this film, and it's yeah. no one in the film. And the film is not richer for being involved with, with canon. It, it's just, there's not $22 million on the screen. Ten years mm. previously was Star Wars, the first one, and that was only eight million in nineteen seventy six, seventy seven. So, yeah. where's the twenty two million? Because no one was, none of these actors are big enough at the time to command multi million dollar pay packets. So maybe I mean, they this built. Was a film, they built a lot of stuff. They might have built a lot of stuff, but maybe this film they were using the budget in a sneaky way to plug holes elsewhere. I mean, that's entirely likely because I think that's the kind of stuff that they did. And that's why they collapsed is because they at some at one point, I think they were producing like 20 years, 20 films a year or something. Oh, so they were gosh. having to move money here and there and everywhere in order to try to keep everything afloat. But then these films flopped and that essentially buried them. But I just think that they their intentions were entirely honorable. I think they were almost you could compare them equally to the asylum and Blumhouse. You know, they're somewhere in between those two very different studios. And Miramax in the 90s. Yes. Well, actually, yeah, one of the interviewees in this that documentary says that they were basically like the Weinsteins. But obviously that's that's a reference that has dated really badly now. But in terms yeah. of <laughs> in terms of like, you know, people trying to produce movies that that were actually good, but I don't think canon necessarily cared so much about the quality as much as the quantity no and if it wasn't for people like 
Canon films, I don't think Arrow Video would have as many <laughs> films to put into their catalogue. You know, yeah, Arrow Video are very not. good at taking two-star movies and giving them the five-star treatment. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm pretty sure that's why I've seen Exterminator, because it got a lush Arrow release about seven or eight years ago, and I reviewed it for Total Film. And it's terrible, um, but the menus are yeah. beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the boxes and the extras and the inlay yeah. cards and the artwork that comes with it are great, which is why I only ever buy Arrow DVDs and Blu-rays when they're on cheap. I would never pay. Oh. I would never pay thirty pounds for one. I mean, I would pay for an Arrow version of Masters of the Universe. This film is basically impossible to find. You have to buy it on sort of region-free Blu-ray. And I, at one point, I had it on region one DVD, one of those really annoying old Warner Brothers pop flip case pop. Oh, DVDs. with the cardboard ones. Yeah, which was. Yeah. Fine when I had a region-free DVD player, but I don't anymore. But there was actually some good extras on that. Like, um, the director did a commentary on it, and there was, like, other stuff, I think, that was on there. Well, um, this is the 35th year of this film. Where's our special edition? Where's our special edition? I've got a question. Oh, okay. Are He-Man and Skeletor as bad as each other? Oh. In this film, <laughs> not in general. Well... Skeletor seems to want to be some sort of dictator. You know, he wants He-Man as a slave. He wants him to kneel for him. He wants to rule the universe. He doesn't want to share the glory. You know, he tells Evil Lynn off at one point because she was trying Evil to take Lynn. some credit. <laughs> Evil Lynn, that's her name. I don't know, you just said Evil Lynn. Like, <laughs> bloody Lynn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that evil Lynn from accounts. God, oh, bloody Jesus Lynn. Christ. What, a, what an evil Karen. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, he tells her off at one point. But He-Man seems to be this do-gooder, you know, goody-goody two-shoes. He wants to save the day. We don't mm -hmm. understand why. No. So what makes you think they're the same? Well, they both want power, essentially. They're both kind of fighting to be masters of the universe. And, you know, what we know about absolute power is absolute power corrupts absolutely. So if He-Man's in possession of absolute power, what would, what would actually stop him from becoming Skeletor? But he does have absolute power. He doesn't want the power. He has the power. That's his catchphrase. I have the power. <laughs> and yet he's still using the power for good. Mm. you know but Skeletor his, but... wants the power and when he gets the power he gets his glow up and he tries to kill He-Man mm. but can you can you not say that I mean Skeletor says it's always been about us and that their battle has basically torn Eternia apart so is He-Man not as to blame for this as Skeletor it's difficult because we don't know what the backstory is to this no. version, do we? Because no. it feels like we enter the film in the third act because suddenly it was just like, oh, there's the key, get it. Oh, let's get out of here. Yeah. We, there's been no fucking build-up whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So it's really difficult to know. And if it has always been about us, does that mean us as in Skeletor and He-Man or us as in our our side the skeletal side and your side because he-man's not that old in the film at mm. most late 20s early 30s so if it is about skeletal and he-man they can't be fighting that long and skeletal just needs to build a bridge and get the fuck over it 
I feel like Skeletor's the same age as He-Man. Like, they probably went to university together and then they fell out over, like, someone had a bigger sword or something. I don't know. Is there a queer reading here? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, he gets whipped oh, in yes. front of Skeletor, which and, is... And he keeps going on about, I want you as my slave. Kneel before me. Yeah. Neil, my name's not Neil. Uh, yeah, I kind of. There is definitely the weird kind of S and M thing going on there. But do you think that Evelyn is actually the one who's in love with Skeletor? I don't know because she fucks off at one point, doesn't she? She's like, "Fuck this shit." Yeah, so I think I think she's yeah, she's probably in it. She's probably the sort of person that would jump ship to save herself. As in, like, she'll just side with the winner or who she thinks she's going to win. She's mm-hmm. she's probably the most political of the lot of them. Whereas Skeletor is more fascist. Evelyn is more... Um, Opportunist. You know, she's, yeah, she's playing the long game. She's, she's you know, she's more tactical. Mm. I love her. I think that she's so great in this because you're... I mean, I swear you never see her blink once in the entire film which in itself is terrifying well i mean there's a reason for that they the actress closed her eyes and they just painted her eyelids as <laughs> yeah like in if a, she in wasn't Jones. blinking christina pickles wasn't walking she just stood still for the whole fucking uh, film easiest gig of her life easiest gig and brilliant she would then play monica geller's mother in friends yeah christina pickles what a, what a brilliant like is this a prequel to Friends? Is this what happens? <laughs> is this why she's so mean to Monica? Because Monica kind of fucked up. Monica, she she did a Monica. She did a Monica. <laughs> Stupid girl. She fell for the oldest trick in the book. The old switcheroo. The old dead mum switcheroo trick. <laughs> oh, I saw that one coming. That's not your mum. That's evil then. Oh, you stupid cow. You fell evil for it. Lynn. You pulled a Monica. <laughs> What's the connection here? What's the connection between Masters of the Universe, this version of the film, and yeah. the Shadow Glass? Right. This is the point where I really wish I had a better memory because I I did I wrote a piece for Digital Spy called In Defense of Masters of the Universe about five or six years ago. And as I was doing my research this evening, no, yesterday evening, um, I came across uh, a thing about the production designer for Masters of the, of the Universe who called the massive statues in the throne room space gods. And I don't know if you remember, but earlier on in the season, I was talking about how I had an idea for a puppet book called Space Gods that I'd written down before it actually became The Shadow Glass. Mm, And... Doesn't ring any bells. I have no memory of... of kind of like being inspired by that piece of information and then coming up with Shadow Glass. But the fact that I was doing research in 2000 and whatever it was about for my Digital Spy article makes me wonder if that was originally what planted the idea for The Shadow Glass. So I feel like of all the films that we've watched so far on the series, this may be the one that actually is most responsible for The Shadow Glass, which is weird. Because you don't remember it. Because I don't remember it at all. But, oh well, there you go, that's what happens with inspiration. Um, I mean, I think that there's... 
and age, yeah, absolutely. I did hit my head a few years ago, and I swear that my memory's got worse since then. <laughs> I hit my head, actually. Did I you? Was, well, I was... I, I stood up onto the toilet, and I was trying to hang a mirror, and I slipped, and I hit my head on the sink. And Ooh. the... The vision for the flux capacitor entered my head. <laughs> the blueprint for how to make it. The blueprint, yeah. <laughs> um, there's tons. There are there are tons of references to this film in the Shadow Glass. If you want to look for them, um, you know the Canon logo inspired the logo for the movie studio in my book. Skeletor. It was a huge inspiration for the villain. I basically called the villain a cross between. Uh, Miss Piggy and Hannibal Lecter but really it was Skeletor who kind of inspired her more because I just love the idea of a villain who's just unapologetically evil they just what's the villain called power. in the shadow glass uh, she's called Kunin Yilda and she's Kunin, a, Kunin Yilda evil and Lin. she's a power mad evil Lin style villain yeah um, so yeah basically if you want to look out for references to Master of the Universe in the shadow glass you're going to find a lot of them That was Masters of the Universe, directed by Gary Goddard. Joshua, give us a clue as to what's coming up next. Oh, it's the end as we know it. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify, anywhere, wherever you get your pods from, so you don't miss that episode. And we're on Twitter, at TornStubsPod. Come and let us know how much you love Masters of the Universe. We're off to read the instruction manual on the Cosmic Key, so we can fucking know how it works. Until next time... I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Josh Winning. Good journey. Good journey. Good journey.